Hey, entrepreneurs and website owners, if you're ready to take your online presence to the next level, you need a reliable web post. And that's where Hostgator comes in. Hostgator is your one-stop solution for easy, affordable, and powerful web hosting. Whether you're launching a blog, an online store, or anything in between, Hostgator's got you covered. Don't miss out on creating the website you've always wanted. Visit milwaukeemafia.com slash Hostgator today and let your online journey begin. You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your weekly podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody, welcome to Milwaukee Mafia. This is Eric Waltikins. This is Gavin Schmidt. And Gavin, take her away. All right. Not even sure what you called the podcast today that was a i called it milwaukee mafia is that okay the podcast it is doing? Okay, it is on, it is on. but like you really wow you breeze through it okay so we've got uh we got something a little different today no eh, not really not really <laughs> <laughs> no we're gonna talk about the mob boss in milwaukee before frank bellstree so we're actually we're moving up to like the 1950s now we're getting there okay and i think you mentioned this person's name last week or maybe not last week, but in the previous weeks. I may have. What is his name again? This is going to be John Eliotto. Okay. Name ring definitely rings a bell, so. Okay. So we're going to talk about him today. We're going to start at the beginning of his life. He is living on Detroit Street in the 1910s, which is where a lot of the guys lived. He worked as, what job do you think he had? Garbage collector. He was a garbage collector. Yes. Yes. For whatever reason, this apparently was a dangerous job collecting garbage because uh, he had two fingers that were cut off from his left hand while doing this job. Not sure how, but it happens. His greatest alleged criminal act prior to becoming the mob boss was the murder of Albert Scorsoni, a small-time hoodlum who used such aliases as Joe Nenapoli and Liberto Natale. Scorsoni and some other guys robbed a saloon on St. Paul Avenue. The owner and five patrons were forced into a closet, and $320 was stolen. That's $7,400 today. So well worth it, probably. Yes. <laughs> the men were soon arrested in Chicago. While in the Milwaukee County Jail, they allegedly threatened the life of the guard. It's never a good idea. And their trial date was moved up. They were sentenced to a variety of terms in prison from anywhere between 12 and 25 years. Okay, so if they're sentenced to somewhere between 12 and 25 years, how many years did Scorsoni serve? Five. Pretty good guess. Seven. <laughs> <laughs> While inside, he made the acquaintance of Nick Giliardo. I'm sure I just butchered that. Both men were released in the summer of 1922 and immediately started working together, transporting bootleg liquor between Chicago and Milwaukee. After being free from the state prison for only three weeks, Scorsoni was seated for dinner with Joe Shortino in the basement of a boarding house on Detroit Street. They had a hearty meal of sardines, cauliflower, fried potatoes, and tomato soup. Mm. I'm curious, just to step back for a minute, you yeah. said that they were... Transporting alcohol from Chicago to, from Milwaukee to to Chicago, right? Yeah, back and forth. Yeah. So, do you know? I'm just curious. Is was it more common for? Because I imagine, like in Milwaukee, we probably had a plethora of alcohol. Mm -hmm. So my mind would go to that they were probably transporting more alcohol out of Milwaukee down to Chicago. 
Or did Chicago just have it so nailed down that they were producing so much alcohol they were actually pushing it up here? Ooh, that's a great question. I think it could go both ways. I mean, definitely Milwaukee, I would say, was more wide open as far as making alcohol. But Chicago was pretty corrupt. So it's like, I mean, at one point, Capone was actually operating a brewery in Chicago. <laughs> I mean, that's how that's how the well... The first he, brewery ever in the Chicago city limits. No, no, no. <laughs> but I mean, during Prohibition to actually run a brewery, that's, that's bold. <laughs> so... I, you know, it could go, I would say probably Milwaukee to Chicago, but it could go either way. Right. They were just, they had a route running between the two cities, so. All right, so they're eating these sardines, cauliflower, fried potatoes, and tomato soup. <laughs> and in the middle of dinner, what do you suppose happens? Somebody gets shot. You are correct. <laughs> Eight shotgun blasts coming through the window, and Scorsoni's head is blown to pieces. Wow. Detective Deaton, the guy who can speak Italian, questioned people in the neighborhood, but nobody claimed to know about the incident. Some said they didn't even hear it. A man who lived there with his wife and son said that he had known Scorsoni as a child in Sicily before coming to Milwaukee, but he didn't know anyone who would do this. He was a good guy, right? Yeah, he was a good guy. <laughs> the police found uh, Galliardo, or however, the, the partner in bootlegging business. He was shocked when he heard the news. He he had no idea about it. He didn't know who did it. An informant later told the FBI that the murder was carried out by Joe Gamina and John Aliotto, which is why it's in this episode. Mm -hmm. The Guadalabenes had wanted Scorsoni gone, and Aliotto was the man for the job. Now, this is, I mean, this is kind of a, it's not firm. This is the 1920s, and the FBI thing isn't for like decades later. I cannot say that what the informant said is accurate, mm-hmm. but it's generally pretty good. Right. Yeah. Eliotto knew that his future was in the restaurant and tavern business. Uh, while running the restaurants, he's still working with the garbage department, but he switches over to the street department and he rises up his way to labor foreman, which is, you know, basically a supervisor position. So better than just being the guy who has to clean everything. A strange detour comes in his story in the 1930s, where he turns up in an unlikely place. Barbara McAndrews Odario was brought to court in Brooklyn, New York, in June 1939 and held on $10,000 bond. The district attorney had this amount granted after telling the judge, The reasons for this high bail cannot be disclosed at this time, but the district attorney's office in conjunction with the police, are investigating further ramifications. Apparently, this is good enough the judge granted it. Odario was believed to have lied on her marriage application, claiming to be divorced from her second husband when she was not. Oh, man, held in jail for $10,000 for lying on your marriage record. That's crazy. Oof. These further ramifications soon came to light. Police arrested three more people in Brooklyn. Real estate broker Frank Sabilia, his wife Josephine, and Charles Fishgold. Odario's charge of perjury was dropped, but now she was involved in a new scandal. Frank Sabilia had an idea to use a man named Alfred Odario, a man with terminal cancer and heart disease, in an insurance scam. Odario lived in a room run by Charles Fishgold, one of the suspects here. Sibelia and Fishgold had another man who was healthy, 
Take a physical for Odario. Getting two life insurance claims for $5,000 each, which today would be a total of $84,000. In the meantime, Barbara McAndrews was married and changed her name to Odario. She didn't marry Alfred Odario. They never met, but she used his name on the marriage certificate. Not long after that, the real Odario passed because he had terminal cancer and heart disease. <laughs> Barbara then showed up at the insurance company with a death certificate claiming her money. She handed it off to the other people who gave her $1,000 for her trouble. Well, she didn't think this was enough money. She's like, I went through all this and you're only going to give me 1000 So she complained and reported the fraud to the insurance company, who of course then told the police. The police started suspecting that the man buried in the cemetery under the name Alfred Odario might not even have been Alfred Odario, but this might have been another part of this elaborate scam. Wait, wait, wait. So so the guy that had terminal cancer might not have actually been Alfred Odario? Yeah, right? they, said, they said maybe that it even used a fake name on the sick guy <laughs> for a whole other layer of this. They dug up the body under the suspicion that maybe he had been murdered. He was not murdered. <laughs> okay, well, that's a good sign. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> at least they found somebody that really died naturally. Mm -hmm. Detectives went to the home of Frank Sibelia's brother, Mario. Mario was, was investigated because he was a witness on the fake marriage certificate. He was arrested, and while arrested, two men were in his apartment visiting him. Milwaukee mobster members Michael Amato and John Eliotto. They were arrested for violating the Sullivan Law, which at that time, it was illegal to own handguns. If you had a gun that was small enough that you could hide it in your pocket, that was illegal in New York. Okay. So they were arrested for that. One of them had an automatic 1920 caliber 635. I don't know what that means, but it was a fully loaded pistol. John Aliotto had a 38 caliber Colt Police Positive Special, fully loaded. Mike Amato had a fully loaded 32 Colt. So these guys were packing. They were ready for something. What connection did Aliotto and Amato have to Brooklyn and the Sibelias? I have no idea. Uh, we talk about who Aliotto is. Amato was actually Pete Guadalabene's partner in a funeral business. So he was somebody known too. Back in Milwaukee, Aliotto tried his hand at being a tavern owner again and opened the Express Bar on Michigan Street. The tavern closed in 1950, which is about five years. Meanwhile, in 1948, he opened Aliotto's Supper Club at the corner of Van Buren in Michigan. And this was actually popular, but eventually the city bought them out in 1958 as part of urban redevelopment. This is when the freeway went oh, through. Sure. Aliotto had to move his restaurant to Wauwatosa which still stands to this day. Aliotos is now on Highway 100. Is it still called Aliotos? It's still called Aliotos, oh, yeah. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yep, still there. All right, a rising star, Aliotto lobbied hard to be the next mob boss after current mob boss Sam Ferreira was going to be stepping down. He approached one bar owner and offered his services if the bar owner ever got in trouble. In August 1951, the bar owner came to Aliotto and said that he needed help. Aliotto asked him, where's the envelope? The man said, what do you mean, the envelope? What's the envelope? Aliotto said, well, we've got to put the fix in and pay off a couple of guys. 
The owner walked away as saying that the incident wasn't that serious and he could just go to court and take care of it himself. <laughs> um, just a quick question on, and I'm forgetting the word that you said, how you worded it, but mm-hmm. you said John Elioto pushed to become the mob boss. Well, I said lobbied, but yeah. Yeah, lobbied, yep. okay. Can you kind of talk about that? Like, what it what does that entail? Just trying to get other mafia members support? Basically, yes. To, but I'm assuming this isn't like a democracy where they vote on the new Bob boss, right? Uh, not quite a democracy, but I mean, you still want to have support from certain groups of people. I mean, whether it's a majority or not, I don't know. I mean, and definitely the lower guys have no say in the matter. So do, do not have, quite a democracy, but I mean. Do you have any sort of insight on does the new mob boss just kind of step into the position because everybody's like, yeah, hey, this is going to be our guy? Or how does that work? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess basically somebody could, and sometimes it's it's not in a good way. <laughs> sometimes somebody goes around town and they're like yeah i'd like to be the new mob boss and they're like oh there's already a mob boss and then one day oh the guy's dead <laughs> and uh like that i don't know about that in milwaukee but but, that- but like famously that's like how john Gotti in new york got to be mob boss because he was telling everybody that he was going to be the mob boss and then strangely enough the guy who actually was gets shot outside of a, a steak restaurant he was already kind of like campaigning before the job was available. Okay. And of course, uh, I don't think I need to tell you who killed the guy outside the steak restaurant. <laughs> so basically, you would say that it's just they lobby to get support. And then basically, whoever has the most support, it just inevitably yeah. becomes the mob boss. Like, I don't know. I don't know what the actual process is. Like, if they all have a meeting and they debate it and, and stuff. Like, I'm not sure. But... It, they come to some kind of an agreement. I mean, it's not just like one guy says, I'm the guy. He has to at least have some people backing him up. So it would probably be like when we talked about the hierarchy. Yeah. There, there's like, a, I forget what you call them, but like almost like the commanders or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Them. And those people would probably, you get it, a good amount of them to support this one person. And that's probably the yes. person that ends up. That's kind of what boss. you want. If you got those guys backing you up, you're probably going to be the yeah. guy. Yeah. All right, so after Sam Ferreira is out, John Aliotto does become the mob boss. It's said that he helped uh, he was helped to get the position by talking to a lot of people in Chicago, and the Chicago guys were like, yeah, we like John Aliotto. He's a good guy. We, you guys, you Milwaukee guys should pick that guy. He's, he's cool. So that helps, too, when you got Chicago John's backing you up. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the FBI, even though they weren't really very active yet, they were already aware of Aliota being the mob boss as early as December 1952. Uh, they had heard that Ferreira stepped down and Aliota took over. They also believed that Frank Legalbo, who's come up many times uh, mm-hmm. on this podcast, was now the head of the younger section of the mafia crew. Not entirely sure what that means. Okay. I but, thought it was going to be my question. <laughs> but apparently he's like the, the captain of uh, some of these younger guys. And uh, during Aliotto's reign as boss, some Milwaukee records would grow, uh, most notably their relationship with organized labor. So like the Teamsters Union and things like that. Why was Sam Ferreira stepping down so Aliotto could take over? Allegedly, he had tried to steal the Ogden Social Club 
which we had mentioned in the gambling episode. Mm -hmm. This is the gambling club that kind of jumps around to different houses. He had tried to take it over from Frank Balistrieri. He wanted Balistrieri out of there and then wanted to kick him out of the family completely. But John Aliotto, protecting his son-in-law, said, no, no, no. And he called in some friends in Chicago. And when the Chicago guys came in and everybody saw that John Aliotto and Frank Balistrieri were buddies with the Chicago guys... Sam Ferrer's like, okay. I mean, granted, he's the mob boss. He should be able to do what he wants. But apparently, he overstepped it on this one. And that's kind of interesting because hearing that, it almost sounds like having the Chicago people on your side was probably a huge advantage. It is definitely a huge advantage, yeah. Because, I mean, if the mob boss of Milwaukee lost his foothold because two people that were not the mob bosses of Milwaukee came in with Chicago people and said, they're in support of this. Yeah. You know, Chicago carried some weight, which would make sense because I would imagine the Milwaukee guys almost kind of probably looked up to the Chicago guys at mm-hmm. this point in time because they were, you know, much bigger, much more yeah. powerful than the Milwaukee. It's always, it's always a really tough question because Milwaukee was its own mafia. Some people ask me, they're like, did Chicago run Milwaukee? And the answer is no. But <laughs> it, they still had so much influence. Mm-hmm. I mean, the mob boss in Milwaukee could do what he wanted. Because not that it would happen, but if it came down to Chicago and Milwaukee getting in a fight, Chicago's <laughs> going to win. Yeah. So so they, they don't have that, like, say on a day-to-day matter of what's going on. But, yeah, they, they have a lot of influence. And I would think that Chicago kind of had that with probably a lot of the surrounding areas. So yeah, I think you, you mentioned like that there was a mafia in Rockford. Yep. Right. Yep. And so they would definitely have that same hold on Rockford. They did. They and, did in Rockford. They did even as far as Kansas city, city. Chicago yeah. had a lot of influence. All right. When members were brought to the chair for violations, which is means they were sit down and talk to the men that would preside over them were John Eliotto, his boss, Underneath him, as underboss, was Mike Minio. He had two captains. Again, it's not a very big family, but one was Frank Balistrieri. The other one was Joe Gamina, who was mentioned earlier as a suspect in that one murder. And consigliere, or counselor, advisor, Charles Zarconi. So these were like the top guys during Aliotto's years. Under Aliotto's rule, the muscling of gamblers and legitimate businesses actually stopped. This was normal for people to try to get a cut of the money from gamblers and protection money for businesses. And Aliotto really wasn't a fan of that. He kind of toned that down. But they did have some internal problems. A man named John Detropany spread the word that he would pay for hits in order to get the leadership role after John Aliotto. <laughs> well, that's not cool, apparently. And it would lead to his eventual death. It also caused Detropony's friend, Frank Lagelbo, to lose a lot of influence because he was seen as siding with this guy instead of the real people in charge. And another ally of John Detropony, Jack Inia, would also later be killed too. So we'll get to those in a few episodes from now. We're getting pretty close to that. Eliotto tended to focus more on his legitimate business prospects, the restaurants, and did pretty much as little as possible to bring on the heat from the police and the federal government. 
He retired from his city job in 1958. He spent his later years working out of his restaurant. His connections were still evident, though. When the FBI would run his phone records, they found out that he was still talking to mob guys in Des Moines, Rockford, Chicago. So he was still keeping up with them. Bill Bonanno, the son of the mob boss in New York, one of the mob, there's five mob bosses in New York. So one of the mob bosses in New York wrote that Aliotta was present at his making ceremony, which may or may not be true. I find it very suspicious that a Milwaukee guy would be at a New York making ceremony. And remind me, what is a making ceremony? When somebody officially becomes a mob a member. member. It's just kind of like a sworn in or yes, whatever. Yes, yes. It would be very weird for a guy from another city to be there. Um, not entirely impossible um, because Aliotto probably knew the the New York family through the cheese business, which we'll probably do next time. Play the cheese next time. <laughs> Get that out of the way. Um, because they had connections through that but it's it's very suspicious to me that a guy in milwaukee would be at this which is normally just like you only have guys from your own city there so you said that john aliota cut back on this like protection money from legitimate businesses right right so and then you also mentioned that he was more kind of more focused on his legitimate businesses than the whole mafia thing yeah is there any record of to indicate that that i mean i would imagine this would send up turmoil within the mafia that we're like well we got this mob boss and he's not doing anything because he's too busy running these businesses that probably i'm assuming the mafia had nothing to do with yeah um like i say i mean there were were the guys internally who kind of wanted to take over they didn't like his leadership and he eventually does step down i mean he doesn't stay boss until his death. Mm. So he also ends up getting replaced. But yeah, he's very strange because there's like a handful of murders during the time that he's boss, but there isn't, it's a relatively peaceful, like there's murders, but there's fewer murders than there used to be. There's fewer high profile crimes. I mean, it kind of seemed like he was phasing things out. It's always strange to me. This is a question I have again and again is why some guys are in this business at all. I mean, Eliotto, I mean, he's getting, whatever crimes are going on, he's getting some kick-ups from that. You know, people have to pay him and whatever. But obviously the bulk of his money is coming from running his restaurant. It's just like he doesn't need to be a boss. He's not really getting anything out of this. Mm -hmm. So I don't even know what the motivation to be that guy is. But I think if... The like, way, why he wanted it, I don't know. But do you think it was just part of his life? Because when you ran through his family, mm-hmm. they were all tied to this in some way. Or he p- might not have known anything else. Like, Oh, sure. You know, this is probably just something that was expected of him. Or, you know, he didn't know any other thing. Like, this was just part of what he had to right, do. Because right. Because that's just how he grew up. Yeah, you know? I mean, it's... It's not, we didn't talk about it today, but there was one time where the police went to go talk to one of the Guadalabenias. I don't remember which one, but they went to their house and John Aliotto answered the door. Like he didn't live there, but he was the guy who answered the door. So yeah, I mean, so he was tight with these guys going all the way back. Yeah. 
I mean, that, that that's probably more or less the case. Is he was raised in this. It's the lifestyle he knew. And at some point, he became successful just as a normal business owner. But he was already in it. It sounds like Frank Balistrieri kind of worked his way up in the mafia while he was the mob boss. Like, and that's fair. And they were very close to get. They were very close. What did you say? He was his son-in-law. His son-in-law. So, like when you were talking about this, um, him not taking protection money from businesses and things, is that something that when Frank Balistrieri became a mob boss, came back? Or did Frank Balistrieri just kind of follow in his footsteps and leave that kind of stuff? Like was, I guess, was the did the mafia continue on a line of being more legit after John Aliota? I'm going to say no. Okay. So you're going to, so Frank Balistrieri came in and, and kind of shifted things around and made it yeah not as legit. We'll right. go with that. Right. Okay. So we'll see. After the next few episodes of this, pretty much everything is going to be a Frank Balistrieri story because the guy's in charge for 30 freaking years. And yeah, he's very closely involved with the gamblers, taking money from the gamblers. There's definitely times where there's businesses getting uh, shaken down for money. I mean, there's one time like a bakery gets blown up because they're not paying money. Uh, so in any of these things that, you know, that Elliot allegedly, that Elioto was allegedly, you know, scaling back on, they all come back. back. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I was just curious because if they were that close knit like that i just kind of wondered if you well learned from him and then just kind of carry that yeah forward. but that's that's gonna flip what do you mean they're not gonna be that close okay so they're uh they're, we're, we're gonna see them butting heads as yeah. this goes along yeah okay. gotcha yeah right now they're apparently on good terms but that does not stay that way okay little foreshadowing into what's to come for everybody yeah so I'm I'm sorry I took you away from the story quite a bit there, but not do, really. Do you know where you are <laughs> that you can yeah. go back into it? No, actually, we're like at the end. <laughs> okay. I just got this one little one little piece, and that's that um, John Aliota. I mean, he lived out his life in Milwaukee, and only once ever was he in any trouble. He was pulled over and given a five dollar fine for failure to yield the right of way in a vehicle. That's it. That's it. That's, That's it. it. <laughs> so he got trouble earlier when he was in Brooklyn for his um, having his pistol. But other than that, all the years he was mob boss, never got in any trouble at all. So really like an incredibly boring figure, honestly. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the FBI monitored him from when they started following the mob up until his death. They followed him constantly because they knew... He had been the mob boss, and he was Frank's father-in-law, so he was a top target. But they never found a damn thing other than, you know, the fact that he was making phone calls. They knew that he was still talking to guys, but he never did anything. So, so in this, when you're saying he was still talking to guys, this was when, after he stepped down as mob boss? Even he, after he stepped down, he, he still, still did. He still had contact. He still did, yeah. And, but they... It, hadn't tapped his lines or anything so they didn't know what he was talking about they just knew which numbers he had called kind of surprised they didn't tap his his lines lines, yeah but but yeah but just the fact that he's talking to these guys i mean he was still in the loop on things 
Yeah, Lou Fratto in Des Moines. There's no reason to talk to that guy. Tony Musso in Rockford. No reason to talk to that guy. He's come up in the past, and he'll probably come up in the future. He's a terrible guy. <laughs> no reason to talk to him. So, so not only are the people he's talking to mob members, but they're also pretty dark mob members from <laughs> Tony Musso is nasty. I mean, I don't know if we talked about it or not, because it's more of a Madison story. Not a nice guy. I mean, he had businesses, definitely, but never... He was... Everybody knew who he was. He was not a legitimate guy by any stretch. So, and then, is this the last we're going to hear about this mob boss? Or there's a couple episodes of stories that happened while he was in power? Well, we're going to talk about the those murders while he was in power. power. So, his name is probably going to come up. A little bit more. But this is... I mean, really... Anything that's like directly about him, this is about it. it. And yeah, basically, he was pretty boring. He's pretty boring. He's always just in the background. It's interesting. Yeah. So, okay, I think I'm out of questions. So, well, you, all right. <laughs> you got anything else? No, I don't. All that right. was about it. All right. Well, we get, we threw together a short one for him today. Is it is it shorter? It's not really shorter. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but just a reminder to everybody: our Patreon is live. You can access that from MilwaukeeMafia.com, right hand side. Find the link, or you can go to Patreon.com/slash MilwaukeeMafia. Sign up for it. I think this week, well, coming up soon, probably by the time you hear this, there will be two episodes posted on the special feed for Patreon members. So check that out. As always, leave us a podcast review on your favorite podcast player. And Gavin, hit them with your beautiful contact information. Sure. Uh, at this point, you should know what you're doing. Uh, pretty much anything anything Milwaukee Mafia MilwaukeeMafia.com MilwaukeeMafia at gmail.com Facebook.com slash Milwaukee Mafia or now as you heard Eric just say you can go to Patreon.com slash Milwaukee Mafia trying to corner every possible combination we could use it in so uh, one way or another you'll find me it's not that hard thanks everybody for tuning in this week we'll be back in two weeks with another episode we'll be back next week for all the patreon members to check out a oh new yeah episode and i'm eric and this is gavin and we will see you in two weeks all right bye <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Join us next week for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history.